everybody. This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast. And while I am podcasting, I am simultaneously going live on Twitter. Today, I'm going to be doing my second episode for Cornbread Poetry. So, my editing is going to be a little bit different today. I don't know how people are going to respond to me doing this live on Twitter and also recording a podcast at the same time. I just decided to do it simultaneously, so here we go. Uh, The first poem I'm going to be reading and discussing today is Rhyming for Lindsay. I was dating, well, dating. I was involved with a young lady who lived in Pennsylvania, and we met in a chat thing back in 2014 it was right around Thanksgiving break and she was in Morocco and I remember when we would Skype she had this very ornate backdrop it looked like kitchen tile so that was interesting but uh, that only lasted for a few days but uh, she had me write a, a poem that was a bit more conventional So this is called Rhyming for Lindsay. She asked me if I could rhyme, as if I wrote something more accessible, I could make a dime. Already I shake my head because the poetry audience is all but dead. Why bother expressing myself to no one when no one, when talking to the wall would be just as fun? See if I mess up live, I can't edit it out. In my darker moments, I might joke about how I want to die, but really just want you to punch out my eye. The temporary pain may cause me to forget, which really serves as more of a threat. If I lose my anguish and have nothing to bitch about, then my days as a poet will be in doubt. The face I write is a joke. Probably says more about my work than any of the other shit I write as a jerk. Structurally speaking, I wish it were more in line, but when does this this happen in any poem of mine? This is too much. Doing it live and doing a podcast at the same time is too much. I'm going to have to go back and edit this shit. God. So this next poem is called Sabotage My Own, and for some reason, it was the most popular one on Digital Verse. Hello, Katie. Uh, I, I, I don't know why, uh, but it's about writing, and it's one of the many poems that I've written about writing, but also obsession and depression. So, here we go. I look a little too long. Wonder if every aspect is airtight. My perfectionism is what leads to the drinking and lost sleep. Through that obsession is the isolation I need to make my own insanity. The true clutter is outside. I never leave home to avoid people unlike your own unhealthy mind. Inside, my grum-infested romance, licking through the shades only to see the reflection I saw before. I'm not there. I don't work enough, though. King says 2,000 words a day. I need more but rarely take the inspiration. So I turn to someone else, a mental flirtation, sabotaging my ethics, drenching the ugly on my face. In retrospect, I think that 
Sabotage My Own is about how, despite the fact that I was in a committed relationship, I was in the same relationship for eight years, uh, I had these hormonal feelings. And so, of course, I was looking at other girls. I mean, I was very young, so I don't know that I could really help that. I can hear traffic in the background. It's bothering me. Anyway, I'm not going to read every single poem in this book, but uh, I'm very tempted to. So, this is called Obsolete to Me. The irony of that song from that bothersome woman who refuses to say who the song is about. Well, most people get the point at this juncture. If I write about a flower and throw in personifying traits, the poem symbolizes a girl, and that won't make me clever or romantic. Instead, imagery and stone trick the reader as they imagine a mountain. The pines hover over a curve, straw mingles on soil, and you just saw the nature as I describe a girl. Her hair, body, or clothes. But all I did was write a description, and I promise it means nothing. When I hold a lady in my arms, I'm not thinking about grass or daisies, so why lie to her when I can show her that the scar she loads feels supple to my lips? The freckles her daddy called beauty marks feel lush like the rest of her stainless skin. In your mind, you see this plain man as suave, perhaps tan, dapper, and someone who never wears slayer shirts to bed. An ideal writer one who adores a woman's form as it stands, isn't uniquely ordinary when you read his words, but take a gander at reality. This poem means something new to you, and it's obsolete to me. All right, so I'm going to read the title poem, Cornbread Poetry. This was in response to my creative writing professor. I was taking a uh, an advanced poetry class and I ended up dropping it. So I mentioned this in the last episode where I talked about dropping it. And one of the reasons why is because he literally told me that no one would ever publish me if I kept writing the way that I did. And I'd already been published several times. So there went his theory on that. But also uh, we were supposed to be talking about several of our poems and he would spend about 30 minutes talking about more than one of our poems. I think it was two, but when I presented on mine one day, he decided to take the opportunity and spend about 25 minutes talking about why I wrote basically the wrong poem. I should have written something else. And it was a very personal poem about my father. And I I've had a hard time writing about my parents uh, I just now started writing about my mother a little bit in my poetry. So, it was very personal, and he kept trying to set guidelines and rules for us, and I guess, you know, you have to do that in a creative writing class, but at the time, I, I didn't see the point in it. It is at this point in the poem when I would like to address the blue skies, spring winds, barren wastelands, and mama's cornbread cooking on the potbelly stove. Those are annoying, 
stupid cliches that I will touch with risen blood washed down and stone words that mean my ass is coming out of my face. See, Steve Goodman wrote this song called David Allen Coe Likes to Sing with His Tongue in His Cheek. I wrote him and told him that my poetry professor said I could not write too prosy. I could not write too posy. And I could not jump out of the window the next time David Bottoms is in town. Already, the red pen flows over my words, marking the brittle rant or prose or creative and critical approaches that offend a lily on a leaf-blue crown. As my poem turns to fluid, the snow vapor stream rubs the ironic stanzas and girls run through soft briars. Steve wrote me back and told me to fuck off and stop riding him. Then he said the oil in his pickup truck runs on cornbread, but the engine, crush and lead and steel, will pull the train over his mama the day we all get out of prison and we are drunk on Irish whiskey, Scottish ale, and Japanese wine. So I sat down and wrote another verse to this poem, and it goes a little something like criminal lisp. Well, I was sober the day Gary Gildner came to town, and I ran into him in the hot Georgia overcast sea. When I offered him a ride in Mama's saddle-bound Ford horse, he got a text message from the English chair. But I'll keep writing as long as you'll read me, and I'll never fail to encrust rules over my paper in the Georgia overcast sea. I don't consider that a good poem. It's meant to be ironic. It's meant to be bad, in a sense. It's heavily modeled on a David Allen Coe song that Steve Goodman wrote called You Never Even Call Me By My Name. I'm going to take a sip of Coke. So at this point in the book, we've gotten to 2015, and this is where my, my poetry gets really moody, ridiculously moody. I think I'm going to stop reading live and continue the podcast. I should go into what influenced a lot of these poems. So 2014 was one of the worst years of my life, and... I broke up with a girl I was with for eight years. I was involved with other girls, and it just never really worked out. So in early 2015, I got involved with a girl that I knew from high school. We had graduated together in 2010, and we didn't see each other again until five years later in 2015. And I thought about her when I was going through this really hard time because... I set these ridiculous guidelines for a woman I would want to be with. And one of them was uh, she should be able to watch the Seven Samurai without falling asleep. Well, I don't think my wife could even do that right now. So it was one of those stupid standards. But, you know, when you're coming out of a difficult relationship, you should have standards, no matter how ridiculous they are at least for a while, because uh, otherwise you end up doing dumb things. And I think everyone has a rebound and everyone has a period where they do dumb things because they don't know how to function outside of a relationship. And I certainly didn't because I kept chasing them. So 
I really didn't have a substantial relationship between my wife and my, uh, the girl I was with for eight years, but this was the closest, um, because we were together for a month, um, which is not very long. And it's interesting that I let it affect me. Uh, I was going through some dark shit and you see that in this poetry because I just, I latched onto this person and that that wasn't really fair to her. Uh, I'm not going to say anything negative about her. There's plenty that I could say, but realistically, she isn't to blame for what was going on in my head. Uh, and I shouldn't have pursued the relationship uh, at all, really. But um, I messaged her, told her I'd been thinking about her. She told me she had a boyfriend and that they had an open relationship. I still don't know if that's true, but she was living with this guy in Athens. And uh, I said, okay, well, I, you know, you and I were good friends, so it's perfectly fine if we just, you know, hang out or something. She didn't want that at all. Um, it escalated quickly. And uh, the first two weeks were amazing. And then, the last two weeks, well, they weren't. So this is Return to Black, a not very happy poem. The dissonant piano keys I press sound unique and more in my range when I sing lyrics written for the black flats and sharps. But they only go more out of tune with each pluck. A promise decreases and register through hopes that this song will no longer be a solo. But the ivory cannot miss. After I tickle the strings, they break in tension from my fingers, threading their delicate notes. This is a poem called My Baptism. It is one of the first poems where I discuss a memory. And, of course, I was 11 when I was baptized and it was a very meaningful thing for me. And looking back on it as an adult, it's hard to fathom how much it meant to me. Because religion is, is it's much different for me now. My belief in God is much different than it was back then. So uh, I wrote this in... 2015 and even now five years later I'm much different than I I was then so if you ask me about what happened when I was baptized it would probably be exactly the same but my feelings on it would be different church service on a basketball court next to a stage with instruments singers and a three-piece band We stacked chairs at 12 before everyone left for lunch. But this Sunday, people stayed. At 11.30, I walked with him in front of the congregation. 
and he put a hand on my shoulder as he spoke into a microphone. A story about me on a wrestling mat, how I always lost but smiled after the bigger kid pinned me. He thought I was always happy, but someone up there confused my daily mind as I spoke to thin air in the head I tried with inflation to better. But no one spoke back. They laughed at the tale, but I blushed because I'd never needed their approval. I was coming to him because he opened his arms to me. A blue plastic covering like pillows that rustle in your ear when your head rests would keep me dry. But the whole point was to get wet. The white robe concealed the facade and I walked up to a pool where he welcomed me. Everyone moved from the court to the sanctuary to see this. The one moment I was the person on display But this was between me and him, though I wonder if the thin air was there too. I accepted the resurrection. I accepted the premise. I accepted the the drowning. I accepted the rebirth. Mother drove us home, my hair still wet, and I remember feeling the drops down my face, thinking there was something about the water. It was made of the thin air, but maybe I was still carrying something from the boy who drowned in the pool. I wasn't renewed, and the answers never came. As the old lady said, it's the search. In mid-2015, I wrote some poetry about another girl. Uh, It's hard to describe our relationship because it was a friendship more than anything. And... I pursued her romantically, and uh, it never really got anywhere. We went on a date that is described in this poem called Tea on Thursday. We met in a local coffee place. We talked, and then she left, and we were going to meet on the Starbucks on campus, and... She had me buy a bottle of gin so that we could have uh, gin and tonics. And I didn't have the bottle with me at the time, but I did buy it. And uh, I still had that bottle for several years, by the way, because I'm not a big fan of gin. Just sat in my freezer for a while. Um, I think my wife finally took it, gave it to one of her friends. So... What ended up happening was I waited outside the Starbucks, texted her, said, oh, hey, I'm here. And I waited for about 20 minutes and she said, yeah, I'm not coming. And I said, well, that's okay. And went home and she texted me and she told me that she thinks that I needed to get help for my depression and, uh, that's not really something that you say to someone after you stand them up on a date. Uh, so I blocked her number. And at some point we started talking again. And that didn't really work out either. But uh, I got some good poetry out of it. I was early. The chai and milk spiced on the table or I held the books you left behind. Though I demur your offer 
to find them again. Panic searching, passing by to the back of the coffee house as I finally smile to greet a warm mist that may encircle me as we both open our skins and learn the past trials. Revealing my admiration, I believe she writes more convincing lines than the cryptic moments where I fear, revealing how my chemical mess whirlpools. As I sit near her sulk, the frown I invade to see a responsive verb, the expressions that caused insomnia. Close to you, I lower the veil which seizes my identity so the truth deprives my eyes. The talk we drink, our tea over, our writing, the characters I inhabit, and the music that enlightens the path we need to see and run towards the end. Only, we meet to find the median. The moments I face to share the room with you, a step forward, the life I hold, clasping since I dread you not talking, the spirit I offer... Your luminous mind outshines the grace I see in your hidden gaze that stop that soon stops as my words that mean something you've never heard from me only read as we write. These next couple of poems are quite personal. They are about the girl I was with for eight years, and they were written in retrospect. And uh, as I re- read them, I don't know what's going to happen, but... Here we go. This is called Neighborhood Pet. An orange-spotted cat thumps at my door, the blue tag tingling on the green collar. Through my front window, I want to kneel to her and pet that meek expression, rustle her fur and let paws climb into my lap. I say, pretty kitty, as you did when a neighborhood feline would pass by for an affectionate rub. But it's been over a year since I left you, yet I still hear the phrases and jokes we shared. I can't keep a pet alone. I couldn't keep one with you either, but we shared two dogs that whispered in each other's ears, turning to us when we'd walk into the room. I'd ask your dog questions. She'd jump to a firm and yawn to negate. You'd call my dog names and complain that he stared at you too long. And I lost both by the time you were gone. They say if you feed an animal, it'll come back expecting more. Addicts live by the same principle. All my lovers don't until I tell them to go. But I wouldn't turn you away if you paid a visit. And we'd kneel to the orange and white cat together, our fingertips splitting the hairs. So, um, the memory of this poem came back uh my neighborhood has several cats that wander through it they're not feral cats they're actually uh, pets but their owners just let them do what they want so one of them was a very very fluffy cat and the the family that owned her has since moved but uh my girlfriend and i were outside and this cat would come up to us and she was incredibly fluffy and we'd pet her and she'd sometimes sit in our laps. November, 2013, 28 degrees, the mist converging into darkness overhead, Clapton on the radio, my girl on the passenger side, looking ahead, not seeing the gray as I inhaled the truck's heat, passing Christmas lights and the shapes of angels and horns. 
we drove just to drive sometimes, and the last time was similar to this one. I lust in the cold, wanting the country home, blankets over our intertwined arms, that cream skin pressed to my lips, plump and unlike beauty on a runway. But now I take a mental image of the closed pharmacy, the rusted bridge, and burrito joint we stop in afterward. Returning from our peace, living to fight our war. Yeah, um, we were driving. It was really cold that year. Uh, it actually got a lot colder because January of 2014, it was in the, I think it got down to the single digits, and that, that almost never happens in Georgia. And I had to wear a scarf uh, along with all my other padding. But um, I don't know why I always remember this, but I was listening to Money and Cigarettes by Clapton, and my girlfriend and I stopped by Moe's after a drive in the country. And it's interesting the memories that kind of stick to us. Uh, Again, I don't know why. I also don't know what poem I'm going to be reading next because I'm trying to skip through here and not just read everything. But I've gotten to 2016, so that's good. Um, Trying to get past all the, the humdrum things about girls that I was dating or other things. But... Okay, so, wow, I wrote a lot about girls. Uh, it's it's interesting, the things that influence us. I don't really write much about girls anymore because I'm married, so uh, it's not like I'm having any romantic entanglements. Um, this is probably the first poem that I wrote about my wife, though. Um, this is called Crooked Sheets. Nights with the sheets straight next to me. My hand reaches for nothing until I forgot human touch. And her laughter under a blanket felt as if I'd never shared my bed before I took her home. I couldn't stop the fingertips sweeping around her Victorian tattoo. My lips, able to taste the smell of her hair and the soft twitching neck. Yet all I wanted was her to trust To let me be the one she shares the sheets with. This is called Happier Melodies. We play Monopoly until one of us gets sick. Drying clothes on chairs because her shirts shrink in the machine. Sometimes I look at her with my beard gnawing at my face. She wonders why I can't look away. Our life as one continues without an end to the party watching movies and binging shows with our feet pressed together. I kiss on her legs until her shrieks told me to stop. Her skin tastes better than the last ones. She smells warmer, too. I usually make dinner, though she made the eggs this morning. A continuous existence, waiting as she folds her laundry. I might write her a song if her hands will let go for long enough. Had to wait for inspiration just to get this poem out. Because she's radical as a lamb. 
and the days are unique, like a hangover swallowing barbecue. I'm done with self-loathing words and ready for happier melodies. So, I want to read one more poem, if it's still in here. And I don't know if it's a good poem, but, you know, it directly references Bukowski. I at least like the title. It's called Crying on Bukowski's Shoulder. And this is how I'm going to end the two-part series on cornbread poetry. The next episode will probably be about either Titleist, and that's my third book. Uh, I want to skip Disease of Ambition because it's short stories, and I want to do that last, and then eventually I'll get to talk about my next novel, Price of the Trinity, because probably every single episode of Disease of Ambition will be about a single short story. So, Crying on Bukowski's Shoulder After my cousin's funeral party, I met a girl with plain blue eyes, brown hair, and white skin, yet the way she offered to get me a drink and laughed when I said quaint made me want to speak alone without death's lingering interruption. I told her I wanted to write, and that I did every day. She said I'd be a writer then. That's when I began my Bukowski phase. There was an older woman laid out on my couch with her dead eyes looming at me, who I avoided when she freaked on my phone, sitting in the library with the headphones rambling along with women. I wanted Linda King and got Kathy Bates. So I stayed single for seven months. There were flirtations and long-distance flings, but no one shared my bed. I needed that time to figure out if I was a true writer, a misogynist, or a failure with a bachelor's degree. Those college girls made it seem like there was nothing in between. Now I'm engaged, wedding dress picked out, all my Bukowski novels gleaming on my shelf, but no one printed one of mine. Where's the wicked imagery? of my former poetic self. I'm content in this love, workload, and potential career. Why submit my novel again when potential failure feels worse than an agent's collective silence? Wow, I was bitter as hell. You know, it's interesting how, it, in retrospect, Things seem both bright and negative, and I was definitely very bitter about my experience with publishing. Wow. So, this is the end of Cornbread Poetry. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it enough to go buy the damn thing. So, the next episode will be on Titleist. I hope you enjoy it. Bye. <laughs>